Welcome one and all to this New Mexico in Focus podcast episode. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer at New Mexico PBS, and we want to wish you a safe and happy 4th of July holiday. We hope you have great plans in store, going to make the most of what I hope is a long weekend for all of you. Uh, This again is for Friday, July 2nd, 2021. Got a lot of great stuff coming up for you in this episode. A lot of it having to do with a monumental day in the state on Tuesday. That was the day that cannabis, recreational use cannabis, became not illegal in New Mexico. It is legal in New Mexico. We should point out that you cannot smoke in public areas still. That has not changed. Also, uh, sales will not begin until April of 2022, but you can have up to two ounces on your person uh, without fear of punishment as of Tuesday at midnight. And uh, right away, there was a lot of activity on this front. The Regulation and Licensing Division, which will oversee the Cannabis Control Act, uh, they had public hearing as they continued to work on writing rules for the industry, for licensing, getting into the industry. And then on Wednesday, there was a cannabis conference with regulators, businesses, state officials, Uh, that uh, folks were able to attend to learn more about this industry that will be growing up out of scratch here in New Mexico. So a fascinating week. We want to start at that cannabis conference. The keynote speaker on Wednesday was none other than Governor Michelle Luan Grisham, who of course pushed for this and even called lawmakers back into a special session to get the Cannabis Regulation Act passed this past year. And so she addressed the crowd. We want to bring you some of those comments. The first voice you'll hear is Pat Davis. He's a city councilor. He was on Albuquerque City Council, I should say. He was on the governor's cannabis task force a couple years ago. And he is part of a consulting group uh, that put on the conference and is helping folks learn how to navigate the industry. So with that, here now, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. Every single person. Excellent. Who went to a, uh, a session and realized that there were questions they needed to be asking that they had not even thought of yet? Excellent. That's what this event is for today. Antoine, right? This is two days of the biggest convening of cannabis entrepreneurs in New Mexico. You have the benefit of getting the most experienced oper- uh, growers and operators in New Mexico for two days. You have the experience of lawyers and all of these vendors who know how this works, not just in New Mexico, but in states all around the country. And they're here to make sure that works. So we want you to use your time today to be sure you're getting business cards, sharing your information, asking questions, because this is for you to do. Now, after the we have a, a, our next speaker, uh, we're gonna take a break. And so I'll walk through this because what's gonna happen is when our next speaker gets done, you're in the foyer out here. So go through, you can find some lunch options, staff will help you with that. You'll have an hour to take care of lunch or until 1.30, whatever long that takes. 
to eat your lunch. You can use any of the breakout rooms. You can go out in Civic Plaza. Uh, you can go wherever you need. You can use this room as well. Use it as a networking time. Find somebody you want to have lunch with and go ask them all those questions you didn't get to this morning. And then don't forget that the New Mexico Cannabis Chamber, the paper, and lead maps are hosting a happy hour this evening at 5 o'clock at Hotel Andalus. You do need to be pre-registered for that, mainly because there's only so many tacos. So please be sure you talk to the Cannabis Chamber or dig that email out. They are almost at capacity and we're serious about how to do that. As a reminder, if you're in this room today, we want to respect everyone's health uh, opportunities. We have folks from all over New Mexico and a few surrounding states. And so if you're not standing on the mic with, with a mask in your hand, we're requesting that you still continue to wear a mask out of respect for other people's health uh, concerns as well. So if you have one, we'll ask you to do that when we're all here together. Uh, last thing is that there were some lost items that were lost in the La Cienega uh, breakout room this morning. Uh, check your pockets if you're missing something very, very important. Nobody in this room needs to be told. But the majority of New Mexicans have been with us on this for a really long time. But even though we were all ready to go, it took the leadership of one very particular person to get us over the finish line and make this work. Running for office, Michelle Lujan Grisham, wasn't afraid to, tell, to talk about and champion cannabis legalization as an economic development strategy for New Mexico. Not a lot of folks were willing to do that. Now as governor, she pushed us not just to be the next state to legalize, but to be the first to do it right. We spent two years building a roadmap that included and put equity and opportunity for every corner of New Mexico forward. And looking across this room, I know that we're doing that because we have folks from Jow, Deming in Silver City, where's uh, Clayton is here somewhere, Taos, South Valley, Gallup, every corner of New Mexico, all looking for ways to get involved in this new industry. Governor Lowen Grisham promised that she would legalize cannabis, and I'm proud to say that earlier this year she signed that bill to do just that. Help me welcome our champion, the governor of the great state of New Mexico, Michelle Lowen Mexico has the best cannabis industry in the country is in New Mexico. That's what I said. I'm, I've already uh, gotten ready to purchase the billboards in Colorado so that I can post a little productive competitive fund uh, at Governor Polis, who you should know is a champion and a very good colleague and friend of mine. But that's what good governors do. They look at economic opportunity. They listen to the individuals who tell them these are opportunities and in industries that can make a difference in so many ways. And for so many of you that I haven't had the opportunity to meet directly or personally uh, in a career that I would retire in, it was completely dedicated to serving 
older Mexicans and their families. So a lot of health care, a lot of long-term care, a lot of nutritional issues, a lot of recreation. Uh, retirees are interested in uh, traveling and doing incredible stuff, learning new things in their states and communities. So really fun, wonderful job, except for one part. The health care issues and long-term care, care issues related to that population and their families are challenging even still today. Just talking about life's journey and the end of that journey and the number of terminal illnesses that folks were navigating in that population and in others, necessitating that New Mexico always had a chance to lead in the medical uh, cannabis industry. And I was working for Governor Johnson at the time and he tried to make that happen. Couldn't do it, couldn't do it. And this is not even partisan politics. I mean, back then, just like today, there were more Democrats in the legislature. New Mexicans is a very uncomfortable subject. Medical issues, but make no mistake, it was about cannabis. And the heart-wrenching testimony from individuals who know who can make a difference and who want to control over their lives, opened the door for making sure that cannabis as an industry has a multitude of places in our both economic opportunities and in delivering sustainable building, sustainable plastic replacements, renewable energy opportunities, and make no mistake, it's going to continue investing in healthier New Mexicans. And 17 years later, we now have adult use because most of you in this room never still make for the future of New Mexico. Um, I still remember when a whole group of you, there's too many issues. We got to separate the bills. We can't separate the bills in the Senate. They'll exasperate it. And I made it really clear, Pat Davis, Councillor Davis, that nobody was going home for at least not more than a week or so until cannabis was upstairs on my desk. So here's why that is so important, is that challenge now is squarely in your laps. And I have no one I trust not just to New Mexicans who are engaged in this economic opportunity, but to whole rural communities who I know are represented here today from every corner of the state. Because for far too long in New Mexico, whatever we do always is an I-25, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, Las Cruces, and often not really Las Cruces families, not just in the ad world, but in a number of areas don't have the same opportunities. Entrepreneurs from all age groups, all educational backgrounds, all communities across the state. And your job as part of this conference is to make sure we launch the industry smartly in a number of measures. The government is cumbersome, complicated, not entrepreneurial. That's what I need. I need you to have an industry where the entire world says, have you heard about New Mexico? My God, it's not green and red anymore. On the planet. I am pumped up by your
expertise and buy them dry, um, 11,000 jobs can be created. Hundreds of millions of dollars in sales. Tens of millions of dollars in the first year into government. That's important because as you've all seen, even in a pandemic right now, we're working on a flood in any county. Government needs resources to protect the people who live, who expect you to stand up and provide whatever you need when you need it. That's a partnership. And you're going to create an industry and an economy and a group of experts that are going to make sure that future generations of Mexicans have not just these opportunities, but will have a government that can lean in and provide any number of resources, ideas, and strategies to increase the quality of life here. So congratulations on your incredible work. Thank you so much for honoring me today by allowing me to say thank you. I didn't say thank you if you haven't met uh, our new superintendent and deputy superintendent of regulation and licensing where this is all gonna live. They are rock stars. Uh, and they're gonna give you, right, faith that government can be nimble and smart and flexible. They certainly have proven that to me and the legislature. And spend this time in the next few days to make sure that we get every opportunity right. Thanks and congratulations. We are on our way. Thank you, Governor. Thank you to all of you who've been here today. We're just getting started. So here's what we need to do. It's about time for lunch. Set your alarms on your phones. As you mill out, grab your lunch, find somebody to have lunch with. Uh, we'll be uh, getting everybody together. Set your alarm, 1.30, right back here in this room, and we'll get our afternoon session started. Thank you for being here. All right, let's bring in the line opinion roundtable now to talk about the start of this new industry in New Mexico. Joining us this week, Dan McKay from the Albuquerque Journal, also regular Sophie Martin, and we welcome back Merritt Allen from Vox Optima. Mentioned it earlier, but the big thing right now is folks who want to get into this business, get their licenses going, get applications going. They're all scrambling a bit because there are no official rules written out. And uh, so a lot of questions there. We mentioned the public hearing where people brought comments and input. Uh, probably more than all that, though, they brought questions, which was not the point of that. But the Regulation and Licensing Division is responding to a lot of those questions now as they work through the process. They're still in the process of hiring a director and putting together an advisory committee to help them with those decisions. That committee has to be in place by September 1st. All this doesn't leave a lot of time for folks to figure things out. And we know here in Albuquerque, at least, that real estate is super hard to come by right now. And time is of the essence, as the city council we reported on this in a recent episode, is limiting the number of cannabis-related businesses within 600 feet. There will be the ability to get a conditional license that would allow for more than that, but people with the conditional licenses will face reduced operating hours and, and other things. So uh, the race against the clock is real. We wanted to talk to the line opinion panel about all of that. So let's kick it over to host Gene Grant. 
It was an effort decades in the making, but cannabis is now officially a legal substance in New Mexico. You still can't smoke it in public places, but it's no longer a crime to have under two ounces on your possession as long as you're over the age of 21. And New Mexicans can now grow up to 12 plants at home without a permit, if you live alone, as long as you are not selling it. Now, the Cannabis Regulation Act became the official law of the land on Tuesday, but questions about how the industry will run in New Mexico are far from answered. Here to discuss all of this, this week's virtual line opinion panel. We thank them all for their preparation for this week's show. Starting with regular and attorney Sophie Martin. We also welcome back to the show Merritt Allen of Vox Optima Public Relations. And we bring back Dan McKay, Capitol Bureau reporter for the Albuquerque Journal. Welcome to you all. Now, there's a lot of excitement in the air haha, about this development and the potential economic impact, especially of this new industry. But it's a complicated issue still. And as we talk about a lot on this show, we don't know yet what some of the unintended consequences may be. And Merritt, will this be a day we all look back on in 20, 30 years as a major landmark for New Mexico? Is it that big? Um, well, today isn't. I don't think. I think we have a long way to go. Um, I think uh, we've got uh, a, a lot of murk to work through. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it was a shame because this time last year, uh, I, I think we knew what was That's right. coming up. Uh, we uh, knew what was coming up uh, in the legislature. Mm -hmm. uh, and so by the time legislation, draft legislation got to the specials, uh, to this regular session, it wasn't ready. Um, it didn't pass. We glommed together a special session. The legislation wasn't great. As you let in, um, if you happen to magically have marijuana in your possession right now, that's okay. Mm -hmm. But we have no real clear path forward about how that marijuana comes to be right. in your possession. <laughs> so we also have um, a tremendous amount of dependence on federal jobs which are also, um, it, it's, you can't have a federal job and uh, be using marijuana. You can't have a security clearance right. and be using marijuana. So I think perhaps July 1st, 2022 could be a big day, but not today. Mm -hmm. I hear you though. Quick point though, Colorado does have a pretty massive federal presence and they're sort of working their way through it as well as we are. Dan McKay, official cannabis sales won't happen until next year, April 1st, as we know, but there's still a lot to figure out before then. The Regulation and Licensing Division is working right now on rules for producers, promulgating those things, you know, who needs to get growing sooner rather than later, all that kind of stuff. Those rules have to be finalized by September 1st, which is like the day after tomorrow in, in time when you're rulemaking. How feasible is that timeline? Are we, are we rushing this or are we dragging our feet? What's, what's your sense of it as you watch this? Yeah, you know, there are people on both sides of the issue who feel like this is not happening as fast as it should. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in some states, they've done uh, marijuana legalization through ballot measures, right. and that gives regulators very little time to prepare for it. Um, in this case, you're, you're seeing both the state and local governments scrambling to figure out how to prepare for this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the key debates that I'll be watching is how uh, cities and counties deal with um, cannabis regulations. They cannot opt out entirely, but mm -hmm. they can set reasonable rules on uh, where these businesses may operate and that kind of thing. And that that's going to raise some questions about: Do you, uh, you know, do you want cannabis stores in uh, a downtown or a historic area, that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to see uh, a debate all across the state, not just in Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. 
Sophie, interestingly, uh, regulation and licensing uh, has been collecting public uh, comment in this for a while. And, you know, Superintendent Linda Trujillo says they're going to make it. You know, they're going to make this, uh, this, this, you know, September thing. But there's still a lot of confusion and concern from people who want to get in the business. You know, that's the big problem here. How does the state and the RLD handle the need to educate the community while also coming up with those rules at such a fast pace? I mean, you're, you're talking about, I, I can count about four major balls in the air these folks are trying to juggle it right does, now. It does feel like there's a certain cart before the horse element to this. Yes. Um, it's not like we didn't know as a, as a state that these, um, that these issues were coming up, that deadlines were coming up, and that people were going to need to know. And, and what unfortunately I think happens is that in the absence of information, it's the, it's the already established businesses that are in the best right. position. Right. I, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm not taking a side here, but that are in the best position to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the folks who are hoping to enter the business are scrambling for detail. And I, I think it's especially notable, for instance, that the city of Santa Fe has has said, yeah, we're, we're working on it, but they seem pretty far behind mm-hmm. in the conversation mm-hmm. um, as opposed to some of the other other communities here. And that's going to be a big market there in Santa Fe. So that's a that's a debate. Those are details that they really need to nail down. Mm-hmm. Um, Merritt, pick up on on what Sophie said. But in this regard, micro businesses, of course, is a big part of the uh, conversation, the, the equity issue mentioned over and over by sponsors of the Cannabis Regulation Act. I mean, Sophie just laid out a, a pretty clear thing. If you've got money now, you can get real estate, you can get in the game. I mean, what's the impact, you know, for these, for the sponsors, what they envisioned? Is it working out the way they envisioned at this point? I, I think that uh, simply by making the cost for a license uh, $2,500, that's not enough to make ease of en- entry equal for all. Mm-hmm. And so, no, not enough time has been spent. And th- th- that's what just makes me so frustrated. Everyone knew this was coming up in the 2021 session. There was a panel created to look at this, and the legislation that went forward was just thrown together uh, at, at the last minute. So. Mm-hmm. Either this is going to be free market capitalism or it's not. Interesting. And I think what we're saying is it's going to be free market capitalism. And um, it, 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 to use a cliche, it is what it is. You know, it, it, you can see the forces forming. It's a difficulty. And Dan, last question. we got a uh, jet for another topic here. What are you going to be watching for uh, as the industry and licensing and rule creation moves forward? Anything particular you're, you're looking for? Uh, you know, a lot of legislators are really interested in equity and um, uh, who ends up dominating the market, whether uh, bigger out-of-state corporations come in um, and have sort of the initial capital and investment to be able to, to start and get businesses going, or if um, local entrepreneurs um, are going to be able to uh, compete as well. So I think they're there probably will be further legislation that looks at some of those um, that tries to promote local entrepreneurs or mm-hmm. smaller uh, smaller businesses, uh, and we'll we'll have to see how that plays out. And one things once things are established, it's awfully hard to roll back or fix. That's for sure. New Mexico, of course, not the first state to legalize cannabis. Uh, we are, I believe, the seventeenth state to do that. We're one of the only ones to do. So through the legislative process, most places have done it through a referendum or a petition vote of the public. 
And uh, so there are a lot of lessons to be learned about starting an industry, and there's already a growing library of research around that very topic. At the forefront of that is the Pew uh, Charitable Trust. They do research on a lot of public affairs topics, policies, uh, all sorts of things. And our Growing Forward podcast team recently sat down with Adam Levin. He is a principal researcher there with Pew to talk about some of that research. We want to give you a taste of that now. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Megan. It's good to be here. And so Pew has looked at the issue of so-called sin taxes for state budgets like alcohol, tobacco, and then followed up with studies on how recreational marijuana sales fit into those analyses. So first, let me ask, it's really tempting to raise taxes on things like alcohol and tobacco products, and a lot of states have done that. But what's interesting is usually they're raising money for public health programs, which if successful would actually help curtail consumption of these products and thus reduce the revenue from sin taxes. So how are these kinds of taxes problematic for state budgets? Yeah, um, it, it's an interesting question because I do think, um, like you were saying, sort of from a policymaker's perspective, there are can be at least you know competing goals curtailing the use or um, uh, increasing revenue, and so there's sort of a balance that needs to be struck there. Um, and you know, state policymakers need to decide if they're doing this for public health reasons or for for budgetary reasons. Um, when you're talking about other syntaxes like uh, alcohol, tobacco, some of the issues from a fiscal perspective are that um, to to keep the revenue increasing year after year, for the way those uh, goods are taxed, um, you either have to continue to increase the tax rate or you have to have increased consumption, um, which going back to what we were saying earlier, both of those have or can have, you know, depending on the policymaker's perspective, can have negative consequences or are, or are undesirable um, on their own. So those are sort of um, the issues with your traditional syntaxes like tobacco, like alcohol from a budgeting perspective. And uh, how, how does... Uh... Is it fair to compare these kind of legacy syntaxes to cannabis? What are some significant differences? Well, I think there are a few differences. I mean, first of all, you know, when you're talking about tobacco, tobacco use is in a long-term decline. Um, that's another reason why to, to continue getting revenue, you have to either increase the rate or rely on increased use, but it has been in long-term decline. Marijuana, um, you know, it's hard to measure at this point, but it doesn't necessarily appear to be on the same path. I think it's also interesting because um, going back to the public health versus revenue question, um, when you're looking at recreational marijuana in many states, it's been passed by referendum. I know in New Mexico's case, it was passed by legislation, but in many states it was passed by referendum. So, um, you know, it's sort of the public saying we want this as opposed to policymakers saying we wanna do this or we don't wanna do this or we wanna have these goals. Um, that sort of thing. Um, you know, there are some, some differences in taxation. Um, marijuana has a variety of ways that it can be taxed, that it can be taxed and that states do tax it either on the value, um, either on, on the value, um, or on the weight or on the potency. So those are sort of a variety of different ways which it could be taxed and tobacco is usually just taxed on, um, 
on the price per, uh, on a per pack basis, excuse me, there's not a lot of variation in how it can be taxed. So those are some of the differences when you're talking about, um, you know, what you call legacy syntaxes versus recreational marijuana. At least one of the models that we had heard about, uh, I think as, as uh, late as, or as early as last year, um, said that they took into consideration illicit sales in a post-legalization world, meaning that they assume some people are still gonna be using um, uh, or purchasing through illicit markets. Do we know what kind of impact those illicit markets have on other states uh, as far as the sales go? You mentioned California. I wonder if that was part of the, the issue that people already had a way to get it um, before it was legalized. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a big consideration in all of this. Um, converting from the black to the legal market is one of the things that revenue forecasters really have to think about because that's um, ultimately going to have a huge impact on how big the market is and how much um, sales and revenue states take in. Um, there, it's And it's complicated. There's not really a great way to do it. Um, you know, one of the things that states have done generally since recreational marijuana has started cropping up in states is, is learning from other states um, and from other forecasters and, you know, seeing what what has happened in their states. So looking at states like Colorado and Washington. Um, when you're talking about the black market, you know, recreational marijuana does tend to be a little bit more expensive than it is on the black market. And that's because um, it's licensed, it's tested, and then it's taxed. So um, one of the things that policymakers you know, have been thinking about is where to sort of set that tax rate so that they can coax people from the black market to the legal market, um, which is you know, obviously a goal of of legalizing recreational marijuana for all these states. So it's definitely, um, it's a tricky issue. And I think it's something that states are still wrestling with. You touch in your research on some of the bumps and delays other states encountered as they ramped up legal recreational infrastructure. We are in the process of that now with our state agency um, promulgating rules and regulations. Can you talk about how some of those sort of delays impacted the revenue forecasts and the revenue and how they've had to adjust. Yeah, um, so in at least a couple of states, I think Oregon and California are the most prominent examples that I could think of. Um, there were, it, it took a while, it took longer than expected for the market to get up and running for stores to be opening. And um, as a result, forecasters, you know, that wasn't something that they had anticipated. And so um, to start, that was probably a contributing factor to why uh, revenue was um, was revenue that was collected was below what was forecasted. Um, I think that in Oregon, at least, I, I think that has pretty much smoothed itself out. I think California maybe still may still be going through that a little bit, but um, you know, I think it was partly because there were just. I know in Oregon they had way more applicants uh, to grow and I think to sell than they were anticipating, so there was a, a bottleneck processing that. California, um, I believe, has some more local regulations that. Uh, localities could at least put into place. And that was something that um, led to the market being a little bit delayed. So there are different reasons, but um, it's definitely something that states have, um, have seen. So given how this has played out elsewhere, how should policymakers in New Mexico consider the potential revenue from recreational cannabis as they decide where to allot it or what to do with it? Because it sounds like from your research, you shouldn't count on this as like a stable form of revenue every year. Yeah, that's right. So first of all, I think it's important to remember that we're talking overall about a very small percentage of total revenue. So in Colorado, for example, um, in fiscal year 20, they collected about $330 million in recreational marijuana taxes, which sounds like a lot. 
Um, but their total budget is somewhere in the $30 billion range. So percentage-wise, it's a very small number, and that holds across all states. The other thing, uh, like you were saying, Megan, is, is that policymakers, it, it's unpredictable, the revenue, because it's hard to forecast, um, and for all these other reasons that we've been talking about. So policymakers should, should just be cautious with budgeting the money. So that could mean putting it towards savings. Um, that could mean putting it towards... Um, one-time spending as opposed to recurring spending that needs a steady source of revenue every year because you're not sure how much you're going to get from recreational marijuana. It might be better to put it towards a one-time use such as building a piece of infrastructure, something where it doesn't need a steady stream of revenue every year. You'll be able to hear more of that interview as we get ready to kick off season three of the Growing Forward podcast. That's a collaboration between us and the New Mexico Political Report, working real hard with co-hosts Andy Lyman of the Political Report and Megan Kamrick to get a bunch of interviews. We were out at that cannabis conference earlier this week. A lot of great stuff coming your way. Uh, and no official date yet, but before the end of July, expect the rollout of season three with a lot of great information there. So subscribe if you haven't already. Go back and listen to our first two seasons. You can find it wherever it gets your po- your podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We're in all of those places, and we encourage you to leave us a review as well. All right, want to move on to another big uh, news item this week. That was the word that came down from the NCAA that college athletes can now Uh, be paid for their name and their likeness. This uh, comes after Supreme Court ruling uh, that said the amateur nature of the way we have treated college athletes in the past is outdated and not up to snuff. And so the NCAA working on long-term plans around the paying of college athletes, but have basically given uh, states and universities the ability for a year to handle this as they best see fit. And so it was a great opportunity for host Gene Grant to grab Jeff Grammer of the Albuquerque Journal. He does a great job over there. He had a great article out today on Friday on this topic, but they have a fascinating conversation about what exactly this means, how it will work, what sort of sponsorships are not going to be allowed. Uh, It turns out New Mexico is ahead of the game a little bit. There's a law passed in the legislative session last year to address some of these issues. But they also dive into what it will really mean for college athletes here in New Mexico. So this was something we did on Facebook Live midday today on Friday, but wanted to bring it to you here as well. Here's Gene Grant and Andy Grammer, or Jeff Grammer of the Albuquerque Journal. Thank you, Kevin McDonald. Appreciate it. Hey, guys, Facebook Live time. It's Friday. Um, we usually do this on Wednesdays. We had a kind of a crazy week leading into July 4th weekend, certainly. And hope you have a safe July 4th coming up, as a matter of fact. Talk about Jeff Grammer. You see him on the screen there. If you don't know the face, he's a longtime journal writer, Albuquerque journal writer in the sports pages. We're talking about sports today, college athletics, in three very key letters, N-I-L. We'll tell you what that means in a quick sec if you don't know. Uh, basically, what's going on is we have 400,000 NCAA athletes now eligible to earn income from endorsements and the such because of the NCAA's new ruling on this. And Jeff, thank you very much for joining us. And, and 
it's going to be one of those clarifications, sort of an early part of the interview kind yeah. of things. Let's not assume anybody knows what's going on here. Let's step back to the basics. What is NIL? How did it come about? And what is the goal from the NCAA for this? So, you know, even a step back before NIL sure. kind of started to come about, the, the long um, standing kind of foundation pillar of, of NCAA athletics and college athletics has been it's about amateurism. Right. Well, that started kind of uh, shifting a little bit through the years. Um, even Olympic sports, which was all about amateurism for so long, started paying their athletes. Um, their, it, it, it became more and more problematic to lawmakers and to people watching these sports to, to keep saying that the uh, actual labor force of these, of these actual events, the people we're watching and, and, and uh, enjoying the, the college basketball, gymnastics, baseball, whatever, mm-hmm. the actual labor force, the, the visible labor force anyway, wasn't getting compensated for this. And there are a lot of people that say that that's the way it should be because amateurism is at the core of the NCAA, but the NCAA hasn't really done, frankly, a a good job of articulating why it needs to be that way. Mm -hmm. Um, If, if college coaches since about 2005, I think 85% increase in salaries for the average division one or FBS college football coach is an, is a study I read. Now that's a couple years old now, but um, college coaches in general, their salary has gone up about 60% since about 2005. So the, the reality is there's there's a lot of money to be made and mm-hmm. the labor force kept getting told, well, we can't pay you or you'll be ineligible. You can't have any extra benefits. But the, the question as to why that is, what, why does that need to be um, kind of kept coming up. So um, steamrolling ahead to the past year or so, a lot of lawmakers, and this was on a bipartisan level, decided, all right, if you don't want to pay the athletes, there's no reason that they should continue to be restricted from just earning money on their own being, on who they are. If they want to, if someone wants Jeff Grammer's autograph, uh, you know, I would question them first of all as to why that would be. But let's our, let, let's assume that Jeff Grammer was a, a college athlete. Mm-hmm. If you wanted my autograph, I could give it to you. If you were willing to pay me five dollars for my autograph and I did that, I would be ruled ineligible. Mm-hmm. If if I wanted to get a deal with, and I was talking to you a little bit before we went on, mm-hmm. there's one, um, and we'll talk about some of these deals here in a minute, but mm-hmm. if I want to sign a deal with PetSmart, who wants to pay me a hundred, a thousand, whatever the dollar amount is, um, you know, thousand dollars to post a couple social media posts with my dog, why should that make me ineligible to play football for my university? Right. Um, that's sort of where we're at now. Name, image, and likeness, the NIL is mm-hmm. sort of what we are tagging the naming of what's going on. What happened yesterday, July 1st, was that the NCAA kind of gave in. And they mm-hmm. said, we we can no, we still can't pay athletes. That's going to cause a lot of problems. Frankly, I think they probably can. Mm-hmm. But this is sort of a uh, maybe a stopgap measure to say, okay, at least let them earn some money, a little spending cash. You know, not all these athletes are going to get rich. Nobody, I think, right. really assumes that but they can start making some money by getting endorsement deals. There are some parameters in place. You, you can't have, um, you can't be wearing your Lobo uh, football jersey while advertising, you mm-hmm. know, the Snickers bar or something like that. There, there are some parameters in place, but uh, for now on, starting yesterday, uh, college athletes at the call at the NCAA division one level can start making a little bit of money off their name, image, and likeness. And, and I'll add this um, as well. This wasn't really even debatable at most um, state houses across the country, there were six states that were set to go into, this was gonna go into law as a state law mm-hmm. yesterday. And when the NCAA saw that, they said, okay, we can't have six states and their right. universities 
gaining a recruiting advantage by saying, hey, come play for us because our local Wendy's can pay you a little bit of extra cash to, to advertise, you know, their, their combo meal or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so in an effort to kind of head that off at the past, the NCAA asked Congress at a federal level, hey, can you pass a federal law that says what college athletes can make off their name, image, and likeness. So all our universities have the same level playing field. Mm-hmm. Congress said that that's not really our job. We're not going to rush that through. Mm-hmm. So two weeks ago, they Congress said we're not passing a law by July 1st. So the NCAA basically passed a law that says for one year, you guys make up your own rules at the university level. And that's sort of where we're at. So wow. the advantage is a state like New Mexico might have had um, for one year because they did pass a state law allowing mm-hmm. college athletes to profit off name, image, and likeness without the university taking away their scholarship mm-hmm. is what, what the bill was, Senate Bill 94. Um, that advantage is gone now because the NCAA said, okay, every school, have at it. Yeah. A couple of quick questions just for clarity. Yep. Um, has the NCAA put a cap on what these athletes can earn? They haven't. And, and that's sort of the problem. And in, in, in all, I'm, I'm really, and for a long time, have kind of been on the side of, of these athletes should be able to, to have a lot more freedoms than they do. Now, there mm-hmm. that does cause problems for college athletics. There's a lot of transferring to schools right. um, that give the player freedom that, that fans don't like. There's a lot of things going on that that do all that, that does alter kind of the, the foundation of college athletics. But one of the things is um, in this earning potential, uh, you know, there's no cap on it now. But the, I think the bigger problem that I would admit the universities now have is that the NCAA sort of just threw this on their lap and kind of passed the buck for a year and said, this is all on you guys. I I do think there should be some pretty specific parameters, not necessarily a cap per se, but -hmm. there need to be more specific guidelines on what's allowed and what isn't because where we're at now is um, the, in college athletics, the old there's an old phrase about a hundred dollar handshake, where a booster can just say a good game and right. give give a player a hundred dollars. That's illegal. You can't do that. You can't pay players like that. Boosters can't do that. But now what they can do is they can pay you that hundred dollars as long as you look into the camera and say, hey, go buy a go buy a, a new car at, at, at Jeff Grammer's you know used car lot downtown. You can do that now. So mm-hmm. so we're kind of playing around maybe a little bit with like breaking some recruiting rules possibly and the NCAA didn't really set some more specific parameters. So I do think that there's a lot of compliance officers mm-hmm. in athletic departments across the country right now that are wondering, wow, what, what did we just get into? <laughs> right. um, but, but the reality is like, there, there really isn't a logical reason. And again, from a bipartisan standpoint, lawmakers across the country couldn't figure out what law kind of the NCAA was falling back on to say our, our college athletes can't get paid for things that don't have anything to do with with them playing their sport. Mm-hmm. You know, interesting, the free market being what it is has its own ideas about everything. I mean, you can lay out all the rules you want. It's just everyone has their own sense of these things. And a follow-up question on, on the cap thing. Has there been parameters on what type of products and services might not be allowed yeah. uh, for college athletes to, to push? Because there's a lot of stuff out there that you know what I mean? You may not want a, your, your, your star athlete pushing. So there, there are, again, that's for now, for one year, that's going to be on a state by state level. If, if the, if a state did pass a law, New Mexico was one that did. Uh-huh. If that state law has parameters on what is or isn't allowed, then the, the state universities have to follow those rules or even I private see. universities in those states actually have to follow this, the, the rules of the state they're in as 
per NCAA order. Mm-hmm. The NCAA did not put any parameters on, but schools are allowed to. I, I have a list here. UNM has some parameters. Most universities have these as well. Right. But what they gave their their um, their athletes is sort of a, a, a an FAQ, Q&A sort of thing. They have a green, yellow, red kind of setup, an actual visual color setup nice. that uh, has green for permissible um, companies that they can sign with. Yellow is, as they describe it, not prohibited, but not recommended. And then red is the prohibited. I'll, I'll start by going over what's prohibited for UNM Lobo athletes. Mm-hmm. That is companies that are drugs and drug paraphernalia. Now, Ooh. what's interesting right off the bat there is that includes cannabis. Um, yes. Cannabis in New Mexico, you might know this is kind of a big deal right now. It's a big topic. Right? <laughs> so um, that is actually not allowed Um, at UNM, any endorsement of that or or sort of any partnership with that. And when I say endorsements on all these, sometimes that's trade outs. Um, There could be a local tattoo shop that says, I'll give you a tattoo um, as long as you go on social media and make sure your friends all know what tattoo shop gave you that tattoo. So this isn't just about paying, the trade outs are allowed too. Um, The other companies that are are the other products or or business umbrellas that that the athletes cannot fall under um, at UNM anyway, are tobacco products and, and usage of tobacco products. Again, something that's legal in the United States for anybody of a certain age and college athletes at UNM, there might be a few 17 year olds, I suppose, but uh, for the most part, they're all of age. They're not allowed to endorse or get into a partnership with any tobacco product. Sports gambling, again, something that is now legal in New Mexico, as long as it's right. on um, tribal land because of the tribal gaming act and then alcohol. Again, okay. legal for athletes of a certain age or all of us of a certain age. But um, they are not allowed to do drugs, drug per- paraphernalia, tobacco products, sports gambling, or alcohol. Those are prohibited. Okay. The next step, though, is what we, I say we, I'm, I'm reading off UNM's sheet here, what UNM is asking their athletes not to do. That would be joining it, but they can if they want. We're just hoping you don't. Anything that involves a company that involves sexual conduct, imagery, or inferences, oh, wow. um, that means only fans or maybe... The, the local uh, adult entertainment store, they can do that. Universities are just asking them not to. Um, I know BYU actually has a code of conduct for their students that's pretty strict that includes coffee. There are not, BYU athletes are not allowed to endorse anything coffee related in Catholic. No kidding. Yeah, no so kidding. a lot of this is gonna be interesting. Um, some of the other stuff that I'll, I'll go over on the not prohibited but not recommended stage are competing um, endorsers. So the two big, uh, contracts that UNM has are with Nike for all their apparel mm-hmm. and Pepsi for all their drink products. If one, if their star quarterback then partners with Coca-Cola or partners with Adidas, that doesn't look good. UNM can't stop it though. There are parameters. You can't do anything in your team gear. So you can't be wearing your Nike Lobo jersey while saying go buy Adidas or, or anything like that. And you can't do anything on, on UNM facility or official team time. Um, mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't do anything like that. But on your own time and not wearing any of your gear, you can go endorse Coke or Pepsi or uh, wow. or Adidas or some other apparel company. You can do all that. One one interesting little nugget would be, if I haven't talked to him yet, but if Larry Chavez at Dream Style Remodeling, who the the naming rights for the stadium and the pit just fell through in the past year, right. well, what if he still wants to endorse an athlete just because he's not in business with UNM anymore? What if he wants to have the Dream Style quarterback playing at the former Dream Style Stadium? Um, they can't stop that. That's and, fascinating. And that's what's interesting. Now, is yeah. that really going to happen? Pro- probably not in most cases, but 
you know, athletes can can now have the right to to set up their own deals. Wow. I you know, I gotta say though, your your Pepsi and uh, Nike examples are apt. I mean, that's big money. And, it is. and, and at much bigger schools, that's sort of what people are talking about with that's this. right. You know, Zion Williamson was a guy um, who at Duke two years ago, mm-hmm. you know, he could have gone pro. The NBA now has a requirement that you're not draft eligible until one year after your high school graduating class. Mm-hmm. So college athletes have to go at least for one year. Well, he could have been in the NBA, a top two or three pick out of high school. True. He went to Duke for a year. Yeah. Um, he lost a year of earning potential by doing so. But what if uh, Duke, who is a Nike school, wanted to, uh, what if he wanted to, you know, get his $100 million shoe contract, which he now has now that he's in the NBA, what if he wanted to get one with Adidas, New Balance, some of these products, some of these shoe companies that are now trying to carve a, a niche into the field, he, he actually could have done so. Now, doesn't mean he could wear that shoe during the game, you still have to wear the school sponsored apparel, right? Um, but, you know, after the game, he could have kicked off those Nikes and uh, thrown on some Adidas and and gone and uh, posted on Instagram, whatever he wanted. You know, I, I have to say again, the free market being what it is and the fact it's about being opportunistic and it's about being aggressive. I mean, it's all the things that come with the free market. If I'm Coca-Cola, I'm happy today. I am so happy because I can go after the Pepsi quote unquote stadiums and you can nibble at them at the edges over time and really confuse the marketplace really confuse who's sponsoring what. I mean, you could really muck this up if you really wanted to with a number of athletes in any of those markets to sort of, sort of surround the competitive brand. I mean, well, I can give you another know. example. To, mm-hmm. to your point, media rights company, the, the reason, you know, the NCAA basketball tournament every year is a multi-billion dollar contract now. The NCAA gets multi-billion with the B dollar deal with the NCAA and CBS sports. Now that's over several years, but anyway, it's a multi-billion dollar contract. Football is actually where it's at too. And there's all these TV networks bidding hundreds of millions of dollars to have the rights to SEC football or to the Mountain West football contract, which is under Fox sports and um, under CBS sports network. So all these companies that are doing that, well, let's just take it locally here. And, and I haven't talked with either media company yet, but right now, 610, um, and 770 KKOB have the rights to primary broadcast of Lobo Sports. Mm-hmm. Um, they cover 610 has a lot of women's basketball, 770 has men's basketball and the football games. Well, you know, Crosstown and Rio Rancho 1017 is a sports radio station too. 1017 FM, ESPN right. Radio, they, they're a sports station too. They can't really tap into that covering the games. But you know what they can do? Media companies can endorse players now too. They, and there are some out there that are doing it. So you can actually start paying the quarterback. Doesn't mean the quarterback can deny interviews with the with the broadcast rights company at UNM or anything like that. But there's nothing stopping a media company from endorsing. The Albuquerque Journal could uh-huh. probably offer an endorsement to an athlete now and says, "Hey, just just ask some of your friends and go on social media and tell them to uh, subscribe to the journal every now and then." There's a hundred bucks and or whatever the dollar amount is, and mm-hmm. and you can do that now. And there's ways now for other markets that have felt kind of on the outside looking in to college athletic marketing because there's other companies that just had so much more money. There's a way in now for those companies. Interesting. Very interesting. I got I, I to say for viewers, again, who don't follow college sports, this all might seem just a little bit confusing and all that kind of thing. But we are talking about, I mentioned up top 400,000 NCAA athletes, and not all of them are you know, Division One football players or basketball players. We're talking skiers, tennis players, 
you know, of the whole panoply of, of college athletic sports. And I, I'm, I'm going to be curious to watch how deep down certain uh, advertisers are willing to go inside certain and not do the star name chase. Yeah, I, I think we're, that we're of... talking about a, a much different. And I want you to kind of expand on this, Jeff, if yeah. you could. We're talking about a much different type of appeal. When you talk about a 20-year-old or a 19-year-old who has 300,000-plus followers on a social media platform, for a lot of people who don't do social media, they don't understand the worth of that. Right. They, you, know what I, you know what I'm saying? They, they're like, well, what does that even mean? Well, it means a whole lot to some people, doesn't it? Yeah, and there's a couple legs I'll go with there. First, I want to talk about UNM is partnering, UNM Athletics, I should say, has already partnered with UNM Law School and the Anderson School of Management. They're going to set up classes potentially and some schools have already set up four credit classes how to make your how to market your own brand entrepreneur kind of how to make your own brand and it's not just for athletes anybody can do this sure. so they're already doing that but the other part of this kind of to what you were saying um and and i led my story off in in wednesday's journal with this the backup walk-on quarterback he was a fourth string quarterback last year he ended up getting hurt too and then a fifth string quarterback came on and it was kind of crazy for Lobo football, but the fourth string backup quarterback at UNM is a guy named Connor Janal. He has two older brothers. The three of them have a, a TikTok following of 330,000, I think it is, wow. or 320,000 people, which is pretty impressive. He has been approached in the past by companies saying, hey, would you product placement? You know, there, there's there's some memes going on on social media yesterday, the old Wayne's World that, uh show where you know he's holding up a, a, a bag of Doritos in, in Wayne's world and uh, drinking Pepsi and stuff like that you know that kind of stuff some people just want product placement some people right. want something else but mm -hmm. I'll, I'll tell you it's not just the men's basketball and football players um, the biggest contract signed yesterday in the, on day one of this being allowed was a gymnast at LSU a, a female gymnast at LSU of a women's volleyball player in Nebraska and two twin sisters in the Mountain West Conference that the UNM plays in, two twin right. sisters at Fresno State, Haley and Hannah Cavender, they have 3.3 million TikTok followers and uh, again, another million followers on, on Instagram and stuff like that. These these two girls who, who post videos almost daily of them dancing and just doing whatever the, the silly trend is right now, a lot of these viral dance songs that, that kids right. into, you know, kids these days, I'm, I'm, I'm falling into it. You know, these kids these days, they're, they're doing these little dances on TikTok and stuff. Well, they do that and they have 3 million followers. Well, they signed four deals. They went to New York. They already, you're allowed to get an agent now, not for sports purposes, but for business dealings. They signed with an agent who had four deals lined up with them. The, the two twin sisters, sophomores at Fresno State, signed probably half a million dollars worth of endorsements just yesterday, including Boost Mobile. The two of them will now endorse Boost Mobile, which has nothing to do with basketball, which kind of mm -hmm. begs the question, why was this ever not allowed? But they also have now a supplement company that is paying them. So they'll do some videos now. And while they're dancing, they'll say they might say either put a product placement of the supplement um, or just at the end say buy, you know, whatever the, the supplement's name is. And um, it's women's basketball, but, but some of the biggest earning potential at UNM, national champion cross country team, international athletes from around the world come to run for Joe Franklin's cross country and, and track and field teams. Mm -hmm. Athletes like that have a big earning potential that people aren't thinking about because those are some niche audiences. If you're a running store or you're running apparel company, you're not buying those at, at a Walmart or a Target, like some kind of niche or maybe tennis apparel. 
sure. some of those companies really want to get these college athletes that that aren't really showing up, frankly, as much on the front page of the sports section at the Albuquerque Journal. Some of those athletes are who have the potential to make some money here, too. Isn't that fascinating? It, it, you know, again, I say for folks who don't follow social media stuff, it, these things don't just happen. You don't just get 300,000 you know, followers just by, you know, turning on your account, you have to work it. You have to be like you, like Jeff, like, as you just imagine those two uh, Fresno state uh, women, young women, you have to work it every day to bring value to you. And I could see, you know, it's interesting. I'm uh, <laughs> just to bring a little pro uh, sports into a college uh, uh, discussion. I'm curious where my boy Tom Brady is going to be with his TB12 outfit. This is a brilliant opportunity for him. You know what I mean? Well, that would be a typical example. You know, he, he can now. You know, he can get college athletes now to endorse TB12. That's right. Um, there's a basketball player at Iowa who last week said, "Hey, watch for it next week." He can't. He couldn't unveil it last week, but look for it July 1st. I have a new apparel company coming out of my own brand, Jordan Bohan, and he's a basketball player at Iowa. Right. And uh, he's. You, you know that there are now pro players that can partner with college athletes and there's nothing wrong with that. This opens the door, by the way, too, not just for college athletes, because essentially what NIL is, mm -hmm. is saying college athletes have the same rights as everybody else. Now it wasn't so much that this is something just for college athletes, which is sort of maybe getting lost in the shuffle here. If mm -hmm. you were um, in the band, you were allowed to have a trumpet endorsement or, or something like that already. You just couldn't if you were a college athlete, but now you can but what this also does is open the door for high school athletes. So if you're a, a star New Mexico um, high school athlete now, you actually could either, again, through trade out or actually getting paid, have some local business here start endorsing you if you want to. And you're not going to lose your college eligibility down the road. Wow. You know, I got to wonder, you know, people get into sports for all kinds of reasons. But the main reason, of course, is to compete because they're very good at it. You reach a certain level. It's not, you know kid ourselves here division one sports you got to be a dang good athlete yeah. you know it, it, this Absolutely. is not you know rec ball down the street in the park i gotta wonder though what this does for high schoolers as we're talking about high schoolers in their attitude about getting into not just professional sports but now college sports as a means for income versus a means for advancement to the professional level and then the money would come later yeah. I just, I got to wonder about the ramifications of how an eight, a 17 or 18 year old sees the world and how, you know, how vulnerable they might be to a couple of hundred bucks, you know, here and a quarter bucks there. I, I just, something odd about that at high school level. What, what's your sense of that? I, I, I totally agree with you there. There's going to be, we're going to learn in the next, I wouldn't even say year. We're going to learn in the next couple months, yeah. um, some things that we aren't even being able to predict. I, I do think long-term though, um, there are a lot of frankly low income athletes that that compete for, for a lot of our entertainment at the at the university level at the college level that are getting an opportunity to to get that education first of all but also potentially earn a better income down the road be it through through athletics through, through professional sports potentially some of those athletes now have that opportunity now before they even go to the college level is that going to be a pitfall that maybe slows or even stops their progress to that college level or, or now that they have a little bit of money before they have to work for it there, there's an argument to be made for those people that are hungry and and working to get that paycheck as opposed to once it starts coming in um, there are some people out there already kind of advising college athletes uh, from marketing companies from some professional athletes like don't settle just for right now like don't sell your soul right now for a 200 endorsement deal 
that, you know, may in some way hurt you down the road mm-hmm. or isn't you, you know, don't, don't sell yourself out for something that isn't you just cause you get a couple hundred bucks and get to go to a couple more movies the next couple months or something like that. Right. Like, like still remember there's, there's a long game here that people need to worry about and think about and kids aren't always the, the best. I say kids again, like these yeah. high school um, age kids aren't always the best to, to understand the, the, the perspective of the long game they mm-hmm. want right now to have a little extra spending cash. So yeah, there are some pitfalls here. Um, I think we're going to learn over the next few months, some things, and then over the next couple of years, maybe if this is going to hurt or, or help in, in some of those ways, I will say this, it falls back ultimately to me on this. Anyway, it falls back to this. If you have the right to earn that money, if you're not playing college football, you should probably have that right to earn that money. If you are playing college football, again, I'm not saying get paid because you're a football player, or a track star or whatever, but if you want to um, have a pet smart deal because you post a lot of Instagram videos with you and your husky, like the Arkansas football player um, that signed with PetSmart yesterday, yeah. why why shouldn't he be able to him and his dog make a little bit of extra money? Is it just because he's a football player at Arkansas? Right. I, I think for a long time the NCAA and universities blocked this from happening because they wanted the money. They didn't want a local company going to the athlete. They wanted a local company coming to them. So they can make the money. So there, there are some potential ramifications there as well. If that does in fact happen, our athletic departments that are already financially strapped, as we know here at UNM especially, mm-hmm. um, are they going to start suffering some some financial uh, hardships because uh, companies aren't coming to them anymore? They're going direct to the athlete. You make a very good point there, and that's part of that opportunistic window that we have here for the next uh, few months. And I, my sense of it is that universities themselves or colleges are going to suffer. Because I think there's going to be some redirection of money, like you're saying. If I've if I've got, oh, I don't know, a million to spend, but I can do it amongst a whole avenue of people versus one deal that has just one season long. You know what I mean? It's like which means you know maybe just not even half the calendar year. You got to start to look at what your money's actually doing. It's an old style system when you think about stadium. in in arena naming rights and all that kind of a thing. I think all those things are going to get kind of shook up here. Not immediately, not, not, it's not going to fall to the ground immediately, but again, the free market always has something to say here and we're not quite sure. I'll give you another example. I'd love you to touch on Jeff um, is agents. Yeah. This is going to be a very interesting time for agents. Trust me, dude, when I was, by the way, for viewers watching, if you want to do the old double screen, just punch in NIL in your phone and behold the deals that came across the country yesterday to get a sense of the feeding frenzy Jeff Grammer's trying to talk about here with you guys because it was big time. Now, back to agents. There's an interesting trend I'm seeing. There's a lot of family and friends as agents, meaning brothers of athletes, fathers of athletes, best friends of athletes, ex-coaches of athletes. I, I got to wonder at some point down the road, Jeff, when, when, when these athletes and agents realize how much product they are actually moving for maybe just a few hundred bucks and something may be a little out of proportion there for as far as the agents concerned and then the asks start coming saying hey guys we need a little more out out of this you're selling we know for a fact you sold four and a half million dollars worth of product from our three hundred dollar endorsement we got to redo this deal you know what I mean? I, I could see that coming down the road. What's your what's your sense of that one too? So when, when I referred earlier to college athletics being a multi-billion dollar industry now, like right. a lot of that has to do with 
with an apparel company or a, or a restaurant or a food company, whatever it is, um, they're making money. They, they know that they can sell based on whatever their marketing formula is, mm-hmm. but these college athletes may not know that. So they may sell themselves for, as you say, maybe a couple hundred dollars when, when their market value actually might be more like 10,000. Now, now I'm just throwing out random numbers. Sure. I'm not basing those on a whole lot here, but um, most of these athletes are probably going to get maybe $50, $100 or a trade out here. And, and that's fine. That's what most of them probably would, would love to have. Mm-hmm. But yeah, th- there are going to be some people that are probably going to get paid well under market value, um, maybe a couple hundred dollars when they really should have gotten a couple thousand dollars. What, they're, what the counter to that is, is at least for right now, they're at zero. So, right. you know, an improvement, a, a moving towards even getting taken advantage of in their mind um, for a couple hundred dollars as opposed to getting taken advantage of for zero dollars. Mm-hmm. It's still an improvement, but, but you're absolutely right there. This isn't going away in the next couple of years just because now it's allowed. It's right. going to be tweaked and it's going to have to be reformed. I, I do think the agent um, kind of third party company um, aspect to all this is going to be big. Now, UNM and universities everywhere have already partnered with third-party companies that can now be the, the go-between. They can be a middleman. The, the athletes at UNM can, can sign up with this company that UNM has partnered with called NOCAP, all capital letters, N-O-C-A-P. And what they do is they're the go-between. Businesses can go to them and say, hey, I'm looking for an athlete of any sport, or they can specify I want a female or a male athlete or whatever. I'm looking for an athlete that is interested in this avenue or this product line or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then no caps goes to UNM and says, looks through all the surveys they've taken of UNM athletes and they can partner people up. These third party companies though, now they're getting a piece of the pie. Um, there's a, there's a whole nother avenue that, that agents and companies like this are now getting a piece of. And, and I'll tell you the biggest, uh, there was a, a meme that was going on social media yesterday, but I think it was very appropriate. April 14th of 2022 is going to be a very busy day for a lot of assistant coaches and operations directors at basketball teams and football teams, because a lot of athletes are going to be like, wait, tomorrow's tax day. I wasn't paying taxes for any of this before. What, what do you mean? I got to pay taxes for, I got to pay taxes for endorsing that green chili ranch at Dion's from, from six months ago. What does that mean? So I think there's a lot of coaches and um, people around athletic administrations that, uh, that are going to have to be helping educate these athletes that right. uh, earning income now uh, means a little bit different than what they were doing before. Yeah, I got one last question for you. Well, actually, I got a bunch of questions, but I got to let you get <laughs> back to your, your actual job. It's like pushing out a sports story for the public today. And that is, you know, does this make things just a little icky when it comes to college sports? There's a lot of folks out there who have always been on the edge of this and just really a lot of agita, you know, I mean? a lot of heartburn yeah. about this. Now you get things opened up and it's going to be a frenzy. There's no other way to say this. This is going to be, and I'm on that no cap site. And I'm just like, you just mentioned, now I'm thinking, I see the problem now. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? This frenzy is going to be huge. What does this really do to the overall sense of, of, of people watching college athletics and appreciating college athletics and the kind of athleticism we see with young bodies that are not beat up and not, you know, totally injured, like, you know, professional sports. Sure. Can we feel better about college sports watching all this now? Well, I, I think there's two, two real valuable arguments to say kind of in response to that. One is it is going to get icky, gross. We don't want to see the sausage made sometimes. That's right. kind of what's about to happen here. We're about to see 
these people coming in that look like vultures to take advantage of it, but really are they others view them as the guys that are coming in to start paying these athletes, stuff like that. Um, The other part of this is it, it might be as icky and gross as it is right now, because for so long, some of this that was going on behind the scenes, um, there have been some FBI probes to college basketball in recent years where, where athletes were actually getting funneled money through assistant coaches or, or however it was happening. Maybe this was already going on and the people who weren't benefiting were still the athletes. And at the core of this is, is at least the notion that athletes weren't getting compensated for what has become a billion dollar industry. Now they were getting education and, and there's, there's value to that. There's obviously value to that. But the argument that that's enough value, if, if getting a free education is really worth it, then why is the coach's uh, new deal $2 million instead of $1.5 million plus $500,000 a year in, in free education? Mm-hmm. If there's real value to education, then pay the coaches with some free classes too. You don't yeah. ever see that because it's not really what, we're, what people want to make their living off of. You can't make a living. You can't live off of a free education. So athletes getting compensated finally um, for some of this. It is going to be icky for a while because I think it, it's just so new right now. Yeah. And um, I, I think though that it probably wouldn't have been this bad had we done this five years ago, 10 years ago, um, and we would have had it smoothed out by now. I think it's going to get, uh, I think it's going to get messy for a little while. I do. Yeah. Um, but at the core of it, I don't think it'll ruin college athletics. Yeah. As a guy who covers the sport, I, I kind of hope it doesn't. Um, but I, I don't think it's going to ruin college athletics. I think in the end of the day, there's still going to be um, a Saturday football game that people can go watch either on their TV or in a stadium. There's going to be some college basketball games in the winter that people can watch. And there's going to be a tournament every year. And, and at the core of it, those are still going to happen and those aren't going away. So I think college athletics will still have a very big profitable industry. I just think now that some of the athletes can make a little bit more money and, and here's hoping that it doesn't get to the point where it turns so many people off. I don't think it should. I don't think the athletes making money should turn a fan off. I, I would question right. then what you were watching for in the first place. Right. If, if knowing that the athletes are getting the money, um, getting a little bit of money, if that turns you off. Um, but I do know that it's about to get messy. And um, I'm, I'm hoping it doesn't get so messy that it turns everybody off from college athletics. That's a good point there. That's a good point. You know, I hate when I say I have one last question because I never have one last question. Fire away. I, I got to finish with this. We got to bring it home to, to local. Your, your sense of what might happen here, let's not, not just UNM, certainly we've got State, of course. We've got sure. other college programs out there at Eastern, Highlands, all kinds of different places. Does it, you know, and a lot of these, a lot of the schools are really pressured right now uh, for students, student enrollments dropping like crazy because of societal trends and other things. It just seems like this is putting the universities here in New Mexico in a very tough spot uh, financially. Are, are they losing something here? Uh, we touched on this just a little bit earlier, but is there potentially a big problem for them losing money at state and other places? Uh, that otherwise sure. is going to go to these athletes? I, I think there's that potential. I, I think they would certainly on a public, um, on the record, they would certainly not say that. They would say, no, we're here to, to help our athletes in any way we can because yeah. that's the recruiting pitch. You don't want to be the school that says, man, this is really going to hurt us. Right. Um, they don't want athletes hearing that. They're right. going to do what they can to help these athletes. They are also now going to have to probably step it up even more on convincing their boosters and their partners that look, still coming to us, like the, you may love that um, that point guard and you may love that billboard you have on I-25 with that point guard, but there's still 10,000 plus a night coming to the pit. And that that point guard can't advertise during a game. 
you can come to us and you have you can advertise with us so there's still going to be that selling point there's still going to be plenty to gain from the universities but this will carve into it a little bit now they got to find out a way to maybe move some money around and, and do do all those creative marketing um maneuvers that they can to to make this work for them but yeah th this does hurt um, this does potentially hurt a lot of athletic departments. Now, I would say that the division two schools in this state and everywhere probably aren't relying on revenue sources that are, that, that come from advertising nearly as much and marketing, um, nearly as much as New Mexico state and UNM, mm -hmm. but it's going to, it's going to carve into everything. Um, a booster donating $500 a year, that, that local mom and pop shop that maybe can only afford $500 for season tickets or a thousand dollars a year maybe they carve into that and, and a lot of thousand dollar donations a year come down to seven or eight hundred dollars because the other 200 is now going to an athlete yeah. so yeah this will have an effect on the bottom line at university athletic departments mm -hmm. um and that's what we'll have to watch for the next couple of years i'm glad you got that in i think that's a nice little bit of nuance there by the way my friend that was i, I completely agree it's more about nibbling off the top yeah. over time it, it, versus you know nuclear bomb fell swoop kind of you know losses mm -hmm. Jeff Grammer from the Albuquerque Journal Sports Section. Thank you so much. I, I just, when, when this all kicked off yesterday, it was like, okay, hang on. We got to talk to Jeff here. This is crazy. Well, I'll tell you what, man, I, I covered this and, and it yeah. still somehow sort of snuck up on me um, just this earlier this week. Like, okay, it's here. What does that mean? How are we going to localize this? And then somebody let me know about a backup quarterback at UNM that has 300 TikTok followers. And it kind of clicked to me. This isn't just about the stars. Yep. This isn't about that star athlete. Um, I asked on Twitter yesterday, any Lobo or New Mexico State Aggie um, athlete of the past, who would have made the most off a of name image likeness? And the answers coming back were Brian Erlacher, Kenny Thomas, all the stars of the past. That may be true. They might have made some good money. But I'll tell you who probably had the most marketing value in recent years. There was a seven foot five basketball player at New Mexico State named Simbular, who was the first um, Indian um, from Indian uh, from India, a descendant of India. He's from Toronto, but he had Indian descent. Um, he made it to the Sacramento Kings because he had such a market beyond Las Cruces, New Mexico, and beyond New Mexico that um, that he could tap into as a as a for earning potential, and that helped him make it and play a couple games anyway for the Sacramento Kings because he he opened up the door to a market that none of us were really thinking about. He wasn't the best player that came through New Mexico in recent years, but these athletes have their own way in, the, in a lot of different ways. Maybe it's where they're from, but maybe it's a TikTok following. They have their own way to, to create their own brand. And it's something that us sports fans don't pay attention to sometimes. It's gonna be interesting. It's gonna be fascinating. Jeff, thanks for your time. I took a bunch of it today. Wow, 1240, I took a bunch of your time. Thank well, you so much, big subject. I'll ask this of you. May we tap you on the shoulder at some point down the road when some trends or other things are starting to show themselves? Absolutely. And, and I'll tell you what, um, I'm learning a lot of this as it goes too. So uh, yeah, the working it out in conversation mode sometimes helps yeah. us all understand and that's myself included, but yeah, let's do it, man. This is, this is going to be a wild ride for a little while and uh, let's do it. Good stuff. Guys, thank you very much for watching. Of course, tonight at 7 o'clock, Channel 5.1, we are back. We're not back. We didn't go anywhere. We are another episode of New Mexico in Focus. Some great topics, of course. We will see you next week. Enjoy the fourth holiday. Be safe. Enjoy the little bit of last 80-degree weather we have before it gets back up to crazy. And Jeff Grammer, thank you once again. Really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks, folks. Have a good weekend.
That'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. We've got much more coming for you next week. More from our line opinion panel as they dive into some other news of the day. One of the stories we caught uh, that caught our eye was the fact that homeschooling has nearly doubled in New Mexico in the pandemic. We'll talk about that and what public schools need to do to get kids back in their realm uh, and the budget impacts of all of that. Also, the growing scandal within Children, Youth, and Families Department, otherwise known as CYFD, over the use of a private messaging app called Signal. It's something we've been covering a bit, but there have been lots of movement, including a whistleblower lawsuit. So we'll have all of that for you, plus a fascinating conversation with an academic at St. John's College up in Santa Fe, William Donahue. He's a uh, historical astronomer, and he recently won a national award for his work on that topic and his translations of the work of Johannes Kepler. So senior producer Matt Krupp going to sit down with him. Fascinating conversation. A few extra tidbits for you as well. So until then, again, enjoy your 4th of July weekend. We hope you have a long one. And it's relaxful, restful, and of course, safe. Uh, be safe first and foremost. Avoid those fireworks. Just enjoy the organized ones that cities and other businesses and places are putting on. No need to do that individual stuff. Not in this drought. Not with the pets that don't do well with it. Just better to skip that all together. But regardless, happy 4th of July, everyone. We'll talk to you again soon.